My plan when I left Sudan it was to go to other countries where it can be safe for me and where I can have a, a good life. You can see actually see like the, the English coast, but um, it's like impossible to go by swimming or like uh, if you don't have a, like a motor engine, it's impossible. So. Why I chose to go to England by boat? Because my wife living there, she cannot walk the law there. It is not fair for woman like this situation because she have a little boy, four years old, she cannot go to work and I wait here. It's a difficult situation. It's not fair. It's not fair. Most people that we meet want to get to the UK. That's kind of where they're going to for so many different reasons and they are not going to give up trying to do that just because they face the police harassment here. They've faced much more things like this along their journeys as well. So they're incredibly resilient, incredibly brave and strong people. Hello and welcome to the Info Migrants podcast, Tales from the Border. I'm Emma Wallace. Today we're in Calais, surrounded by high fences darting in and out of makeshift migrant camps hidden behind bushes in the forest and on muddy ground in between the roads and railways which service this busy French port town. Mehdi, we're here where the so-called jungle was and you came and took photos of it um, many, many times back in, well, before 2015. What was it like here? Because we're just looking now, we're, we're by a road or several roads and we're just looking out at grass and scrubland. But what was it like then? Well, it was like a, a small town, really. A lot of tents, but you also had like restaurants, you had shops selling fruits and vegetables. So it was like a like little bit like a slum actually because you had some built up like restaurant but you also had a lot of tents on the side and it was complicated for like uh, sanitation and toilets and everything. And so you had like 10,000 people living in this, you know, in this land which now is just like a, a bush. It's nothing left at all. Mehdi Shabil is a freelance photographer and journalist who regularly works with info migrants. He often reports from Calais and knows his way around the tangle of roads, warehouses and scrubland that surround the port. There may no longer be one big camp or jungle in Calais, but there are still numerous encampments, hidden behind the bushes which line roundabouts, crossroads, near the football stadium, the hospital, and in one case at least, in a clearing of trees over a kilometre into a small patch of forest near some big out-of-town hypermarkets. Mohammed is 18 and originally from Sudan. He, like all the other Sudanese at his makeshift camp, is waiting in Calais, dreaming of reaching the UK. Mehdi and I spoke to him at the side of a football match being played on a patch of waste ground just after a charity had delivered some food to the group. They brought food every day. Okay. And so many times, like maybe four times or five times a day. When did you arrive in Calais? One month ago. Uh-huh. And where did you come from? We come from Italy, then Paris, then Calais. And Most by Libya? Yeah, from Libya. Mm -hmm. We come from Libya by boat mm -hmm. to Italy. And then we, we come to the border of Italy and then we enter by mountain. Some of us by mountain, some of us by truck. Brianson, mm -hmm. Ventimiglia okay. and trucks. 
and they arrive in one of June, you see. First of, first of June. First of June, Italy. Yeah, first of June, Italy. We spend ten days, uh, thirteen days in quarantine, and then they distribute us in the cities of Italy. And then we are free to go whenever we want to go. Yeah, so. You want to go to United UK? Yeah. From For the sure. beginning, it's your number one choice. Yeah, my, our number cho one choice. But why? Because we love we love UK too much, and all Sudanese love UK. And in the past, they colonized us because we have like blood brothers over there, brothers, friends, mm. a lot of people. And why did you leave Sudan? Two and a half years before. Mm -hmm. And I spent two and a half years in Libya just to work and to prepare money to come to Italy. Yeah. What job did you do? So many jobs. Daily labor. Uh, I work in supermarket and I work at any work you can imagine you see in Libya. Just to get money and to come to Italy. You see, so many works. You speak very good English. Yeah, you learn okay. English in uh, Libya? No, in a school, Sudan. In Sudan? Uh, yeah. Wow. And what do you hope to do when you get to the UK? Yeah. What job? Mm, I just want to study after complete study, then I will find a job according to my specific study. You want to study in the UK? Yeah. What do you want to study? What subject? Anything, philosophy. Geography, anything can help me to improve myself. Did you study at all in Sudan after school? Was it possible to go to university oh, there yeah, for yeah. you? Yeah, I entered university, but because of uh, financial circumstances, I couldn't be complete, and I left university because no, there is no money to complete university. You see, I left. In Africa, there is no education, to be honest. Like Mohammed, many migrants cross Europe without asking for asylum along the way because they have specific reasons about where they hope to start their new life. So when you arrive in the UK, you will ask asylum? Yeah, okay. yeah. I see. And for you, asking asylum in France or Italy or Germany, it's not interesting? No. Uh, maybe it will be blumpy if I failed in this, but right now, my first choice is UK. UK. Yeah, I see. And do you know which uh, university you want to go? It's in your mind already. Oxford. Mm, Oxford. Impossible. Mohammed wants to study at Oxford, but there are still miles of fences, obstacles, police, and border guards which stand between him and the other side of the channel. Bonjour. 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 Vous êtes journaliste. And there's a permanent police presence here as well. And is that just to stop them coming back onto this land then? I think so. I think so because what the French government fear above all is a new, sort of a new jungle. Like a big camp where you would have thousands of people just staying there waiting for a way to cross into the UK. And uh, by 
being there, these police, they make a stand saying, okay, you're not going to come back. I think that's the reason they're here, even though they're doing absolutely nothing, as you can see. And it's kind of crazy because you were talking earlier and other people have mentioned it too, just these fences everywhere. You feel like it's kind of like a, a prison camp. There's barbed wire, rolled barbed wire everywhere. Is there anywhere in Calais that doesn't feel like this? Inside Calais, you don't see too many fences, but as soon as you go outside, and especially when you get closer to those roads where you have the tracks, you, you start seeing those huge fences because, I mean, look at them. They're like four meters high. You have barbed wire on top. I mean, how are you going to climb a four meter high fence and then you have barbed wire on top? I mean, it's uh, like a prison. Mohammed says sometimes there is violence too. Did you see violence? Yeah, so many times. So many times? Yeah. They will let the dogs without a mask come to, come to you and sometimes they beat you. The police? Yeah. They use tear gas, everything. They use, they have a spray, use a spray sometimes. They spray tear gas and also tear gas like bomb. So you like more in the street and you're trying to, if you're trying to stop trucks in the street, maybe they will throw that on you in order to, to go far away. So for you, no tent. You sleep just a sleeping bag. Yeah, just we sleep like this. Most of us. I see. Yeah. You see, even if I have a tent, the police will take it. So it doesn't matter. I will spend like this better than put my things in the tent and police take it all. Tent and my things. See. And when it rains, how do you do? Yeah, you survive. You have to put any nylon over your head. Yeah. Until the rain can't go, and, or you have to put yourself into a big trees, or you have to go to any bridge. There is a bridge over there, and there is a bridge under the hospital. People used to go there. What's your impressions of France and Calais? Mm, it's just a matter of time. It's too bad, but we have to spend it, and one day our luck will come and we will pass. That's what I believe. And you're hoping to go on a lorry then or on the, over the sea? Mm, whatever it costs. You see, I will try truck first because I have no money. But if uh, I didn't succeed, maybe I will try another choice. But let us see first. Try the trucks first and then see. Uh, your family is still in uh, Sudan? Yeah, in Sudan. Okay. Of course. Do you miss them? <laughs> Too much. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> Anybody miss their family, see? Mm. Do you message them? Yeah. Can you talk to them? Every day. Mm -hmm. Give them update and But sometimes I hate them. I'm not living in this place in order not to worry about me too much. Mohammed mm. is wearing shorts and walking sandals when we meet him. The skin on his legs looks dry and chalky, the skin of someone who has been exposed to the strong winds and rain that pass across Calais even in the summer. And on top of sleeping outside without a tent, the migrants face what NGOs like human rights observers describe as a policy of constant harassment from the police. Excuse-moi, donc on peut pas passer là. Le périmètre c'est de ici jusqu'à jusqu'à derrière. We arrived at a camp during one routine daily clearance, which appeared to go smoothly. 
The Eritrean migrants had moved their tents onto public land to avoid having them cleared, and the police checked the field where they had been camping and then drove off in several vans. As soon as they had gone, the Eritreans began moving their tents back to the campsite. But human rights observers say the bigger evictions are more problematic. One of their spokespeople described what they notice when the authorities carry out camp clearances. The policy of the HRO organization is to avoid using the names of those who work for them. All the human rights, they're very not respected in Calais. The human rights of the displaced people here. An eviction, it's very violent. Basically, you're waking up 6 a.m. in the morning, there are someone, you don't know who, the police that is like shaking your tent, they're shouting. Uh, sometimes we, we see that the they're gazing, like whatever, so with tear gas. Really? Yeah. And so there are some times that we have a visual access to what's happening, and most of the time we don't have, but people can tell to us. And what we see is that when we, we can't observe properly what's happening inside the security perimeter on this big eviction, after the people told us, okay, I was beaten up by the police, like they did that, and... They talked to me in French. I didn't understand what was happening. I didn't know they're going to come at 6 a.m. I don't know where the bus are going. Can you help us? The place where the people are put, so basically it's some center, to ask for asylum. This kind of shelter center to ask for asylum, they're very far away from Calais. So what we notice also is that the people, if they have to get into the bus, they will go very far away. Sometimes it's in the south of France, so it's very, very far away. And then they, have, they want to come back because they didn't want it to go in these places. So once again, we can notice that this eviction, they're forced. I think that they really try to get the tents because they know that the tents, if they take them, it's going to put the people in a bad situation. Like, it's really difficult. Currently, during the whole month of June, it was like raining and Okay, it's less cold than in winter in Calais, but it's very difficult for everybody. What HRO think is that what the state is doing here in Calais, it's an harassment policy, so it's a dissuasion policy to make people not cross, basically. But to do that, they use a very violent way to arrest people mentally, physically and stuff. It's also a way for the state to show the, uh, its power basically to show we have many policy, we have many gendarmes, we have many, we are a strong state. And we want to show that to the people, to the French people, to the displaced people here, to show that there is a police presence and that we can't do whatever we want. And so it's really like demonstration of the strength of the state. <laughs> Back in the camp, Mohammed says he has had similar experiences. And is it hard with the police clearing the tents here? Is it difficult? It's not tent, you see. Every, even if organization give tents, the police next day will come and take all the tents and you will find yourself without tents in the morning. That's all. So you just sleep on the outside? Sleeping like this. Just in the floor like this, you will find anything to cover yourself until mo morning. When sun rises, it's sun got a new day, and you have to try your luck again. Yeah. So every night you try your luck? Yeah, every night. 
Sometimes you will arrive until port and they will pack you. Sometimes they will catch you in the parking. Sometimes, sometimes you will fall down. You will break one of, break your leg. So there are many people they broken leg. They are in shelter right now. More than 20 right now they are in shelter in Santume. They are broken. They can't even move. You see. We were in Calais at the end of July. By that time, according to British press reports, more than 10,000 people had already made it across the channel in 2021. By October, that number was 18,000. According to NGOs who work with migrants in the town, the numbers of those arriving and crossing also seems to be increasing. The Catholic charity Secor Catholique runs a haven three days a week in the centre of Calais for migrants to charge their phones, wash their clothes, get information and play games like ping-pong, chess and football. I'm Jackie Verhagen, I'm an employee for Secours Catholique here in Calais and uh, I'm in charge of the day centre. In February there was about 300 people coming here daily. Nowadays we're more around 600 and over 600 people who are gathering here every day. The numbers of people stuck in Calais have increased since the end of winter. The numbers in always increase when the weather is better because nowadays the way that they are using to cross the channels to get to Britain is mostly by small boats. And the weather conditions are better in, uh, in spring and summer to try to cross that 35 kilometers of sea between us and the, and the British land. The people who are stuck the, more, the longest time here in Calais are usually the people who have the less money. So they're trying to uh, gather uh, with small groups of people and trying to buy themselves a small, small boat, a small uh, motor to go on the boat. And then they try with a group of with a small group of people to try by themselves with, without smugglers to cross. Though the people who have enough money to pay smugglers are crossing on, on bigger boats, but it's not it's never a, like a really big boat. I mean it's, it's still small boat, but they are more equipped and more uh, reliable than the ones who can that can use the ones who don't have much money. Many of the Sudanese and Eritreans we met in Calais said they had indeed run out of money. They were either trying to jump on trucks or like Awat, a Sudanese migrant hanging out in the day centre in a smart African print shirt and sunglasses, was saving up to buy one of those small inflatable dinghies with friends. Good morning, my name's Awat. I'm come from Sudan. I'm 17 years old. I was come in Libya and after I come in Malta and when I cross the sea, it's too much difficult, you know. Maybe a long time, like six months, inside uh, detention, you know. And after we come Italy and after we come France, now I have six months in France. And after, inshallah, we go to England. England? Yeah. So if you were offered asylum here in France, would you stay? Yeah. How do you feel living here, like uh, in, a, in a camp here in, in France? What does it feel like day to day? I tell the truth. In Calais, I, I feel sad. <laughs> and what do you think the UK will be like? What do you imagine it will be like in England? Just I'm looking for a good life, you know, for a good place, no fight, nobody can kill you, nobody can ask you. 
And do you have friends in the UK who made it? In UK, yeah, yeah, yeah. My group, my group. When when we come together in the sea, these people go before going now in in maybe Liverpool. Oh, Liverpool. Wait, wait. Uh huh. Now inside Liverpool. Okay. How will you get there? How do you get to the UK? I have two chances, by sea or or by by car. Now, but by car is too much difficult. How much does it cost? No, we collect the money after about as maybe we make group like seven, ten, eleven, like this. We collect like two hundred euro, two hundred euro like this. We buy boat, we buy machine, and after we try. Like Awat, many people already know people who made it to the UK. But Jackie says that this can sometimes be a problem for migrants still hoping for a chance in Calais. One of the main problems here is the the quality of the information was given to the exiled people here. Basically, what they know about UK is what they heard from somebody you know, somebody you know, somebody who lived there for maybe 25 years, and it's it's a good place for him, but. He arrived way before the laws on immigration got harder, so they have a really, really, really poor level of information about asylum in UK, but also in France. And sometimes we're trying to give them information, but there's people who just don't want to hear about it. You know, when we tell them that it's life in in England is not that easy, they feel like. I don't want them to go there, but I told them I have nothing to gain to tell you a lie. What I'm trying to tell you is that your application for asylum will be as well treated here or in UK. So there be no difference. But you just don't want to hear it because also in their mind they have to be focused on their goal, and if their goal is to go to UK, then nothing's gonna discourage them to do so. As Jackie takes me from his office to the main courtyard, he tells me how he and the team work hard to make sure everyone is happy, respecting the rules, and doing their best to create a safe space. They also have to diffuse tension. He admits, particularly between different ethnic groups. Anything, any sparkle can sell it. Okay. Tensions. The day before yesterday, Syrian guys unfortunately kick a bucket of water, and the water spills on somebody, some Sudanese guy. And there was tension because of that, but the source of the tension is not that. It's just the 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 living conditions are extremely difficult. The lack of everything, basically, food, water, access to toilets, access to shower. That's make them tense. So anything uh, can become a real problem mm-hmm. if we're not paying attention. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's, it's quite difficult to. Work here because you always have to look around and see what's happening and see what's going on, and be sure that everything is smooth. <laughs> Unlike many others from the Sudanese migrant community in Calais, Jamal decided to stay in France and ask for asylum. As well as volunteering at Secours Catholique, he is also studying for a degree. I'm in France uh, in, since the beginning of uh, 2016. What were your plans when you left Sudan, and why did you come here then? And how was the journey? It's quite long. My plan when I left Sudan it was to go to other countries where it can be safe for me and uh, where I can have a, a good life. 
so I traveled a lot, but uh, I'm not going to mention all of these countries, but I finished by staying here in France. Do you feel happy in France? Do you feel integrated here? Me, myself, I do. I feel happy because I got a chance to study French language in the university. Also, restart the studying here. And uh, also being uh, in France community, worked with uh, associations as, uh, as a volunteer and then also learning a lot about the association. Also, in order to be integrated, uh, I was needed to, to do what French people doing as doing, which is a culture and other stuff. It's really interesting and, uh, and cool to, to be here. But is is it everyone have this chance? I'm not quite sure. But myself, I'm happy, yeah. Now that you can look back on like when you left and now you're here, would you, are you happy you stayed here? Do you think this is the future for you in France? I do. Maybe I didn't uh, achieve what I have to yet, but I am in the process for uh, going ahead and uh, and achieve uh, what I want to, to get, yeah. Although Secor Catholique have a legal team offering help with applying for asylum in France, many migrants told us they had either been refused or their applications had stalled. Like Ahmed, who is preparing to try his luck on a boat to the UK to join his wife, who moved to the UK with her previous husband. My name is Ahmed. And where are you from? From Sudan. And your wife is in the UK? My wife lives in the UK from since uh, 2016. I try to join her with a legal situation, with a legal way, because when I arrived in France two years ago, I arrived by Schengen visa. I live in France two years. I ask an asylum seeker here. I wait two years without reply, without response. I do everything good here in France, learn French. I'm talking French very well. Do you know how much it costs by boat and how, how do you go about getting on a boat? It's not easy and it's not... Uh, it's expensive, but we have no choice. I and will try. Are you scared to go on the boat? Do you think it could be dangerous? It's dangerous, but my wife, my wife she lived alone a long time. It's a dangerous life. We cannot live our life normally like other people. Year after year, we, li we live like this. Leaving an Eritrean man strumming one of the guitars at the distribution point, we head towards the Care for Calais warehouse on the outskirts of town. Imogen and Matt are currently overseeing the daily distribution runs and are in charge of the teams of volunteers sorting through the donations at the warehouse. This is the warehouse that we use to cover all of our work in northern France. So we support refugees in Calais, Dunkirk, Paris and Brussels. So this is the warehouse where we process our donations. We sort everything, we prep everything for distribution. So we distribute non-food items such as clothes, camping equipment, tents, etc. We also distribute food packs once a week as well. So that's dried tinned foods that people can cook themselves as well. So that's why this is all prepared. We also have all of the items that we use for our services. So we provide essential services like phone charging, hairdressing stations, um, sewing, hot drinks, games and bike repairs, so all of the equipment for that is stored in here as well. 
there are no big actors supporting refugees here. It's, it's almost entirely grassroots volunteer-led organisations like Care for Calais. And it's really important that we, that we stand up and that we show that we think it's wrong. Um, that the way refugees are having to live isn't fair, it's not dignified. Um, and to be able to do that with volunteers from the UK and from all across Europe just shows that there are people all around that do care about the situation here. I'm Matt, I am a team leader and operations coordinator here at Care for Calais. For me, like the situation in Calais feels like it's just, there's more and more people here, like there's more and more refugees are coming to, to Calais to cross. It seems that the police are increasing the amount of evictions. The situation is incredibly transient in Calais. There are some people who perhaps we would never even see at distribution. They might arrive in Calais one day, they might have the chance to cross and they go and they're already through. Some people we see, we know, have been here for months, if not years, trying to cross. It very much depends on the method and it depends on the time of the year as well. A lot of people who have made this incredibly difficult journey to Calais will be very determined to get to the UK. Something like this isn't necessarily going to put them off, but I do think it wears them down in terms of their resilience, in terms of their mental health, to have to constantly be moving where you're living, to not have anywhere to live that's safe, to have to live in a tent. Everyone that we meet is escaping a horrible situation in their home country, whether it's war, whether it's persecution. They've had to leave families, friends, all of their belongings behind. And actually, the reasons for going to the UK are very much based on the language that they speak, the jobs they do, their experience on their journey, um, and the opportunities that there might be in the UK for work, maybe in how they're trained. So for me, it's just really important to talk about people and make people aware of the situation that they've come from. At another location across town, a small group of about seven Eritreans have formed a breakaway camp from the main group and have produced a delicious-looking lentil stew over a fire from the food given to them by charities like Care for Calais. They offer to share what they have and settle down to eat, while Suleiman explains that after arriving in Italy by boat, Switzerland took him initially, but then he was refused asylum, which has since caused him problems in the other European countries where he has tried to settle. So you tried three times, Italy, Switzerland, France. Yes. And all the time of Yes. And my question is, if uh, France gives you asylum, mm -hmm. you take it in France or you don't want to stay in France? You are? Yeah, I want, yes. You would say? Yes. I see. Yes. The problem is not given. So if I understand, for you, England is the last chance. The last chance, yes. If you go to UK, which uh, city do you want to go? I don't know. I want uh, I want only UK. I want to papier, you know. Yes. I want to papier, yes. Yes, because I want to work, I want life good. Because I am every day sleeping in the street. Yes, I want to know this life. Many of the Sudanese and Eritreans here in the jungle talk about lorries, but most of the media and police focus seems to be on migrants arriving by boat from the hundreds of kilometres of coastline along northern France and Belgium, where you can, on a clear day, see the white cliffs of Dover. Police patrol the beaches regularly, even during the night, and as Dominique Concy, deputy prefect for Calais' neighbouring town Boulogne, told DW reporter Marina Strauss, cracking the network of smugglers is what they need to do. We are having to deal with very organised smuggling networks who are willfully putting in danger migrant families who are paying them to cross this very dangerous stretch of water, she said. One of our objectives is to try and dismantle these smuggling networks.
But at another distribution warehouse, Pierre from Utopia 56, a French NGO working with migrants in Calais, thinks that the police patrols and increasingly tough French and British policies is doing the opposite and lining the pockets of the smugglers instead. The action of the French government, we are feeling that they are stepping back and stepping back, like of like the food distribution, the water distribution. It's like it's really not enough now, and they know it, and they actually they try to avoid some camps in Calais. That's what they said. Actually, there is a camp near the Euro Tunnel, and uh, well, the people here they do not have access to water, they do not have access to food, and it's yeah the organization of the warehouse that have to do this. Do you think that the the changes or the announced changes in the British policy have had an effect on the French policies? I don't know actually. If you're talking about uh, like the money that the UK will give to the French, but it's I mean they should directly put the money in the pocket of the smugglers because that's what happens when uh, like you militarize a border like this. Despite this militarization and all the obstacles, migrants like Mohammed, who we met at the beginning of this episode, try almost every night to overcome them and reach the UK. He via lorries, others dragging boats down the beach to the sea. As we left him watching a football game, he told us he wasn't intending to give up. Like five times I went to boat and four times the security caught me in the parking and other times they, the trucks going in the wrong way. Okay. So you have to knock and then they will stop. <laughs> the first the dog will barking and yeah. then if there is nothing, the scanner. The scanner will show you, and if you pass both of them, that means you are a win. I see. You are a winner, yeah. See, you have to try more, maybe one day will be your luck. Thank you for listening to the Info Migrants podcast, Tales from the Border. Our thanks to everyone who took part in season one, to the NGOs, to our reporters, and to the migrants, asylum seekers, and refugees themselves. This episode was reported, produced and presented by me, Emma Wallace, with help in Calais from Mehdi Shabil. It was edited by Marion McGregor and was mixed in the DW studio by Gerke Orgi. The music was by kind permission of Chinese Man Music in France. We're going to ask questions difficult. We can't do anything for the